Welcome to the Contrast Church Podcast. Contrast is located in Grandview, Ohio, with the mission to help people be with Jesus, become like Him, and live out His mission together. For more information on attending our meetings, our missional communities, or giving, visit contrast.church. Well, welcome. We are uh, continuing our series through Matthew. Uh, we will not be doing Matthew on Friday on our Christmas Eve Eve, if you are curious, so we will do the Christmas story. But today, we are finishing uh, part five of Matthew, but before we get into that, uh, I want to take some time and share a couple things that people wrote last week. So if you were here last week, last week was our one-year anniversary in this space, and uh, we had people write like just something they've been thankful for, and for contrast, the last year. And normally we use this slot, the storytelling slot, to like to have someone share their story or celebrate something. And uh, we read these throughout the week, and they were just like so good that I wanted to just share them with you guys. Um, I gave a lot of like metrics and numbers on Sunday, like oh we're growing and things are good and money and all that. But I read these and was like these are way cooler. So I'm gonna read these because I think they get at the heart of like gauging are we are we being faithful to the Lord. So these don't have any names on them, but I'm just gonna read through them. I am thankful for the way that Contrast prioritizes loving the lost. Thank you for welcoming all into real life with Christ. Contrast has been a welcoming, loving, gospel-inspired, Christ-driven church that I can bring friends to. It felt more, I felt more cared for by having more Christ-like friends in this weird little town. <laughs> I've been thankful that Contrast has reminded me of my home church and invited me to remember my spiritual roots. Intentionally growing deeper with friends, seeking Jesus, encouraging each other, regardless of the circumstances. Contrast has made worship an approachable, personal, and pressure-free experience. Contrast has renewed my faith that the gospel is being embraced and celebrated by a younger generation. Contrast has given me the final push to ask for help when I needed it. Contrast Church has offered me the utmost grace and supported me during the most challenging years of my life with prayer, meals, childcare, friendship, coffee, words of truth, and just simply their presence. The generosity and commitment of our leaders and members is amazing and has shown me what being servant-hearted truly means. And last, I love that Contrast feels like a family. I've never walked in and not felt right at home. So those are just a few. We have like dozens more in the lobby. If you want to read them on your way out, that'd be awesome. But um, I just think uh, this is really encouraging because, you know, like I said, there's a lot of things you can put on paper that, that you try to figure out. Are we doing like what we call to be doing? But uh, those are just really exciting and encouraging. And, and at the end of the day, it's not even just about contrast, right? It's about what God's doing in Grandview and in Columbus. And so I just love that we get to be a little part of that. Uh, so thank you for those who wrote that. And uh, here's to another 50 years, right? So... <laughs> Once we become self-sustaining in June. So uh, let's jump in. Seamless transition. Good job, Trey. Uh, Matthew 20. If you don't have a Bible, we got some in the back. We, you can grab one, steal one. We're going to do Matthew 20. As I mentioned, uh, can you go back to the title slide, Hannah? That We've been going through Matthew for a very long time. And uh, we're in part five, which is where Jesus is essentially teaching and kind of revealing this idea of the upside-down kingdom. And uh, we talk about the kingdom of the world, which is the way the world sees things and pursues things, power, uh, values, and money, and things like that, and then the way that God's kingdom views it, and it's almost always a complete 180 flip. And so Jesus is teaching us that, and we've been going through that for the last several weeks, chapters 18, 19, and now 20, and Jesus talks about what it looks like to have good relationships in his kingdom, 
uh, whether it's through reconciliation, confrontation, forgiveness. Then he also talks about the three most prominent values in our world that often become idols. Sexuality, uh, marriage, divorce, all that fun stuff. Uh, power, influence, status, pride, and then wealth and just assets and things like that. So those are the three that Jesus takes because we can't live without any of those. Like they're, they're just kind of intrinsically in our world. And uh, we can often take those things and make them idols and Jesus flips them all upside down. He's like, here's how you value these things in my kingdom. And so we've learned about that. And then this last chapter was, was kind of getting at some of the, the postures around all of that, mainly through influence and power and things like that. And so this is the last Two little vignettes we get before Jesus enters part six, which we call the storm, which is this massive high-pressure storm that's been occurring, not, uh, not weather-related, but uh, politically, social, uh, economically, culturally, where Jesus is taking this long journey into Jerusalem. If you put up the map here, we've been traveling from the north, like far north part of Galilee. Jesus has been doing his ministry, healing lots of people, gathering crowds, and he's been making this journey down to Jerusalem. The last few chapters have been this journey. Now, he is at the point where he's, he's uh, we're going to talk about him being in Jericho, which is about 10 miles east of Bethany, just above the Dead Sea. But as he's nearing this, the last seven chapters, seven or eight chapters of Matthew, is all about that final week. We call that Holy Week, and we'll celebrate that uh, in like April and the spring as we finish Matthew. Uh, but, but if you don't realize, the gospel spent an insane amount of time there. Like, I never knew this growing up, that like a third of John is just that week, and a fourth of Matthew is just that week. So there's a lot going on, and so I'm excited to jump into that. But before we get there, this is Jesus' graduation, if you will, from his three-year internship, right? Like, all of his work and ministry is being put to uh, this final culmination with just this crazy week, with Rome, religious leaders, crowds following him. And so this is what we get to. This is the end here, and where there's... Two little stories we're going to read. The first is about two brothers who are pretty cocky, and the second is about two blind beggars. So it's two very contrasting stories, but you'll see at the end how these two sort of fit together. So let's jump into verse 20. We'll start with the first story. A request from James and John. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons, and kneeling down, she asked him for a favor. He said to her, what do you want? She replies, Permit these two sons of mine to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your kingdom. Now, if we just pause here, if you've been following along like, for the last few weeks at all, you've been like, this is a very beat, in, like this has been, a, this is, we're beating a dead horse. Jesus has clearly told them several times, hey, become like little children. Stop trying to pursue power and status and pride. And then here we go again. Uh, honestly, you're reading, you're like, you got to be kidding me. This is ridiculous. Like, Jesus is like, hey, become like this. When they're fighting over, who's the greatest among us, right? And he tells them, become like little children. And then the next day, these little children come to him for him to lay hands on them and pray. And then they yell at them to get out of here and rebuke their parents for letting them. And Jesus is like, no. Okay, so this is ridiculous. Okay, but at the end of the day, when we, when we read this, it's not really that far off from our life. Like, every day we have to wake up choosing to, to lower ourselves um, in, in terms of how we see the world and how we follow Jesus. And, and if you think about it, that happens all the time when we're feeling insecure, right? We start to elevate things. We start to prioritize things that don't really matter because we're just grabbing for security and identity all the time, right? You can wake up one day and be a super secure human being in Christ. And then the next day, something bad happens, and then you're just grabbing all these type of things to numb you, to fill you, whatever. So it's not like we're not like this, but it's aggravating to see it on paper. You're like, gosh, well, when will they get it? Uh, one of the scholars, R.T. France, that we use a lot, he puts it this way, he puts it well. 
The natural human concern with status and importance is clearly one of the most fundamental instincts which must be unlearned by those who belong to God's kingdom. I love the idea of, being, of it being unlearned. It's the most fundamental instinct. And I, I would agree. I mean, I don't know if you'd argue this, but like, we don't have to be taught to pursue ourselves, right? When you're a toddler, nobody teaches you to be selfish. You just, it's your toy and it's yours. Junia does this thing now where like, I will share with her and then it's hers. And I'm like, no, no, no. This was mine that I shared with you. This is not yours that you're going to share with me. She flips it upside down and she's like, no, 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 that's mine, mine. And I'm like, no, no, I shared a part of it with you. And I didn't have to teach her that, right? Like she just, it's, a, it's an instinct. And so in our culture, even in America, we, we don't even have to try to find that instinct. We just have it. And so following Jesus means that we have to unlearn it. It's not a default. It's not a neutral. We have to fight against it and unlearn it in our minds, which is far harder to do than learn something. It's much harder to unlearn and relearn than it is to just learn. And so we have to constantly be thinking about this. And if you look and you notice, this is the third time in a few days that the disciples completely have been forgetting that this instinct is so primal to our nature. Because we're insecure, because we put our our pride in the wrong things because we've been raised in a certain way with certain values and certain cultural assumptions, right? Even in America, we have our own baggage that's significant. And we have to learn what does it look like to unlearn this continually so that we have a heart um, that looks like Jesus. Now, what's even farther more sad about this story is James and John are in the inner three. I mean, they're like up there. Right? So you have the 12 and you have this inner three and Jesus has these, you know, he gives certain moments like the transfiguration and certain teachings and moments to the three and then he has the 12 and then there's like the multitudes, right? And he, he picks and chooses boundaries and things with those groups. And so you have Peter or Simon Peter, you have James and John, the brothers. That's the inner three. So the three closest people to Jesus and we'd argue probably right now Peter's number one, right? If we had to pick, right? He seems like he's the guy. But James and John are close second and third, Right? Jesus, when he meets them, calls them the sons of thunder, which is just an epic nickname. Uh, if I, that was me, I would totally get that tattooed somewhere on me. Like, Jesus calls me a son of thunder. So you're probably wondering, well, why? These guys are um, pretty rambunctious. I think macho is the best way to describe it, but it's not like I'm jacked and I work out and do CrossFit macho. It's more like I am aggressive. Like, I'm passionate. I have zeal. Uh, there's a story about, they don't have a lot of lines in the Gospels, but there's a story where they are going into the city and they don't welcome them. And they're like, Jesus, let's just, in your name, let's just call down some fire on that city. Let's just blow it up. Like, it's total just out of left field. These guys are just, they're your typical, like, uh, just kind of small-brained athlete where they're like, they're really strong and they, they do well, but they don't think through things well. And so this is another moment where they do that. And to be honest with you, uh, if you read the Gospel of Mark, it kind of gives away their agenda here because the Gospel of Mark doesn't include this little moment where their mom comes and talks to them or comes and talks to Jesus. It just says them because they're really just using their mom. So if, if you've ever, if you grew up with two parents, you know this. You grew up with both your parents in the home and you want to go out on Friday night, right? And you know which parent you're going to ask immediately, right? You're like, oh, dad's totally a softy. Mom will ask me all these clarifying questions like, whose house am I staying at? And do... You know, all that, right? Or if you, like, need 20 bucks, you know who to ask, right? And in the same way, the, the James and John are kind of doing that. They're like, well, we've had these two incidents where Jesus did not respond well to us figuring out who's going to, what's the pecking order when things go crazy, right? And so he, they're like, why don't we use our mom? Like, surely he'll be way more sensitive with our mom. She's been following Jesus these last several months, and, and she's a woman, and Jesus is really nice to women, like he is, right? So, because if you notice... 
she asks this question, and she's, she's gone, like the rest of the scene. Jesus doesn't even address her. He addresses James and John. So it's like he knows. I know what you're doing. Like, you're not going to play any tricks on me. And this is the heart of these guys, though. And, and what, the reality of this situation, though, and I think we forget this, is that when you do this type of stuff, when you pursue your own, it doesn't just affect you. It affects everyone around you. You know, if you remember how I mentioned that Peter is kind of the number one dog right now, when their mom asked this question, they're kind of throwing Peter out, right? Like, if Peter's number one and now they're going to be number one and number two, then where does Peter, right? So they're, they're sacrificing their own relationship with Peter and the other disciples for the sake of their own gain and glory, right? And maybe you've had moments like that in sports or in school where you, like, have people kind of go behind your back and, like, hey, I'm not, like, dissing you, but I'm worried about where I'm going to be, and that might affect where you are, you know, kind of a thing. And there, this is basically like a reality TV show. I mean, I kid you not. It's like Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen. He's, more, he's probably like in deep turmoil internally dealing with this, knowing what's going to happen. Then he has these massive crowds behind him who just want a handout. They're like trying to figure out, you know, some of them are maybe curious in the right ways, but most of them, they just kind of want his stuff, right? Like, well, maybe he'll send us bread. Maybe he'll heal someone. We'll get to see all this crazy stuff. And then he has the disciples and then his three closest and they're all just like, not on the same, they're all just pursuing their own vanity. Like if you had to take a test right now of, hey, what was Jesus, what's his mission, and how are you a part of it, they're just scoring a zero out of 100, <laughs> other than just being there, right? Like, oh, I wrote my name on the test. Good job. You did that part. But the rest, all wrong. It, it, if you think about that, if you just take a moment and pause and think about, I think we forget how, like if you've ever felt alone, you've ever felt isolated, depressed, um, Jesus absolutely knows how you feel and more. Because he is completely alone. He knows he's going to die. None of us typically have that assumption in our life, other than maybe people on like death row, right? Like we don't think like that. We're not processing things in light of that. And most of us have some friends who are for us, or maybe some family. Jesus doesn't have any of that. I mean, his closest three are fighting over who's going to join. So them fighting over that is not bad enough. It's them assuming that he's going to... Uh, create a normal political first century cabinet like everyone else, right? Where there's going to be a king and then he's going to have a right hand and a left hand. Like, they're just assuming so many things that are totally wrong about what's going to happen. And Jesus is like, you cannot be more wrong. And you're not, you're just so worried about yourselves that you're, you're, as we're entering into this chaos, you guys are not only like neutral and just not helping me or hurting me, you know, you're like, you're like literally attacking the ministry that I'm trying to create. And I was thinking about it from my perspective. If I was Jesus, I'd be super angry. I'd be questioning, like, man, did I ask the right 12? Like, these guys are duds. Or um, should I, like, turn back and do another, another loop? You know, like, let's teach some more things, right? And, but Jesus doesn't do that, right? He's a secure guy. He, he trusts and he knows in the plan and he trusts in the Father that, that what he's doing and assigning is, is for his good and for their good. But it, it's, a, it's a tumultuous time. This isn't, like, we, we, we celebrate Palm Sunday and we're actually going to talk about that on the, the first week of January, so... A little early, but um, it's like a sad time. I mean, it's, it's exciting that people are like, Hosanna, you know, you, you might be the one. But every, no one really knows what's going to happen. And Jesus cries on the way. I mean, he, he's woe for the people, woe for the city. Like, this is just a bummer way to end your ministry. I don't think we realize that. And so Jesus answers them in, in, in kind of agreeing with this idea. He says, you don't know what you're asking. I think that's a good way of saying, like, you have no idea what's going on. You're not reading the situation. You're not understanding. The three times before this, we're skipping this today, but this is the third time he tells them, hey, 
I'm going to go into Jerusalem. I'm going to be falsely accused. I'm going to be tortured. I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to die. And then I'm going to rise, rise again, right? And he's told them all this, and they just, in one ear, out the other, you know, oh, my gosh, you're going to die, not, oh, my gosh, you're going to raise again? And, and so he says, you don't know what you're asking. And he uses this phrase, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Now, this is Old Testament symbolism. The Old Testament, pouring out a cup was typically in, in realm of, like, wrath, right? It was giving someone their wrath, and it was typically a negative connotation, right? It's judgment and wrath. And so Jesus is basically saying this. We know this from the, the juice and the blood of his sacrifice, that he's saying, do you realize that I am being poured out as an offering, right, like, to, to save the sins of everyone? Like, and are you willing to endure the same thing? And they sort of know this because earlier, several chapters earlier, that Jesus says, you know, pick up your cross and follow me. They would know, okay, the cross is a torture device. Like it is a crucifixion device. We've seen it. We know Rome. That's like their go-to, right? And we know that. So they've already agreed to that. So the sons of thunder are like, yeah, 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 let's sign up for anything. And so they answer, we are able, right? And he tells them, you will drink my cup, meaning you will endure suffering like me. But to sit at my right hand and my left is not mine to give. Rather, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. Now, this is really important. I think we get confused a lot. You know, Jesus, God the Father, the Holy Spirit, they're the Trinity. But it seems like God the Father is sort of like above Jesus or more powerful. And it's not true. But what's happening is Jesus in the Trinity is submitting to his role in this whole thing, right? So he is willingly entering in as a human. He's engaging in a human experience. And God the Father is the guy calling the shots in terms of the plan. So Jesus willingly submits to God the Father. And what this shows us in the way that we handle relationships and we handle life is that when we submit to Jesus, we're submitting ourselves to the body, to Christ, to the church, right? And that means that just because we're submitting doesn't mean that we're necessarily like becoming a doormat. I would never say that Jesus was a doormat to God the Father. They were equal. But yet he still says, here's the Father's role, and here's my role, and here's why I've come. And he's saying, it's not my job to decide who gets to sit on my right and left in the kingdom of God. My goal is to reveal the kingdom, to explain what it's like, and to die so that people can go there. And I love how Jesus does this because he's kind of bringing it back to the, 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 the earthly reality. A lot of times we think about our rewards in heaven and how our crown and our jewels and all how great the gold roads and all that, right? But he's like, no, 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 like here and now, what you're pursuing now will have light of what you're, what you're pursuing for eternity, right? Like what, you're, what your heart is reaching, if you're reaching for status and influence and being impressive and having power, it's going to be very hard to fit into the kingdom because everything's going to be flipped upside down and you're going to have a hard time dealing with that. And so he brings it back to, to now. And what's funny is, yes, are you able? They say we are. And when Jesus dies, who's at his right and his left? Two criminals on crosses, not his disciples. Not James and John. You know where James is? James is far off with the other disciples running away. And John is hiding with some women watching, right? Like the only one. They all abandoned him. They all left. They were all afraid. Now, women at that time had a higher chance of not being executed. It was very rare to have a woman be crucified. But the guys are like, nah, we don't want to risk it. We're out of here. So even though they say we were able, and that when the rubber hits the road, they were not able, however, Jesus is in the ministry of reconciliation and of forgiveness. Every day we are forgiven and new grace has been given. And these guys do drink the cup eventually. They do. James dies in Acts 12. He's one of the first martyrs other than Stephen. He dies and he's killed for his faith. He doesn't last very long in the book of Acts. And then uh, John is exiled to the island of Patmos for the rest of his like, older life. 
uh, which is where we get some of his letters. But what's unique is, this isn't like exile, like, oh, go live in this castle on a sea near Italy. Like, no, it's this beautiful island. Like, I mean, it's, it's not good, right? They are, they are willingly enduring suffering for the sake of Christ. But what's so hard about this passage is when Jesus talks about, are you willing to take, you know, partake in the cup that I'm going to drink, is we just have such like a skewed view of what that means as Americans. We don't experience the weight of following Jesus in light of, of dying, right? And even if we did it when you decided, I'm going to follow Jesus, or you're walking into that, you're not necessarily thinking, oh, that could be a possibility. You're thinking, no, like, I might have to, like, say no to this party, or, like, give some of my money away, or be nice to people that I don't want to, like, you know what I mean? You don't have these deep implications where you really have to do it, and most of us don't. I didn't know that when I signed up to do it, and you slowly realize it more and more as you follow Jesus. That's part of the sanctification journey. But for us, can we just resonate with the fact that we're probably no different in saying we'll sign up for something and then later realizing what it really means and it's hard. And a lot of people walk away because you have no idea what you signed up for. Right? If you were to sit in a coffee shop, I like this analogy because it's very, it's very like, um, illustrative, but if you were to sit in a coffee shop with Jesus and he looks you in the eye and he says, all right, you ready to follow me? And you're like, yeah. And he's like, are you willing to take the same cup I'm about to take? And you're like, yeah. He's like, okay, well, what if that means you're never going to get married? And then you're like, can I have some time to think about it? <laughs> right? Or what if that means that you'll never make more than $40,000 a year? You'll never own a house. What if that means that 30 years in, you're going to be paralyzed? What if that means that you're going to have health issues the rest of your life? What if that means that you're going to lose family members to suicide or to a, tra- uh, to a car accident? Like, like all these things, right? Like, and now, we don't list those out when we follow Jesus, right? It's usually a hypersensitive moment. We come to and we're like, I'm giving up this thing. I want to find freedom. But we have no idea the other half, which is we give our whole life away, which means that we, we, we surrender to what Jesus is calling a life of suffering, to, to drink the cup. And so for many of us, and you've realized this, you signed up, and you're like, great, and you gave Jesus a little bit, and then you realize, oh, a couple months down the road, this is far, I got to give way more than I thought. I got to give way more. That's, that's the journey of sanctification right? I'm on that path. You're on that path, right? So just remember that these disciples, Jesus doesn't completely write off, right? What he does is he uses it as a teachable moment. But what we have to realize is that in these moments, there's carnage, not just with them and Jesus, but with everyone. Look in verse 24. Now, when the 10 had heard this, when the 10 had heard this, they were angry with the two brothers. Because like I said, I mean, this is a, they pulled a quick one on Jesus, like, oh, we're about to go in Jerusalem. Passover's coming. People are going to be all around. We should jump. This is our moment. Mom, can you get over here real quick? Ask this question, right? And the other disciples are like, wait, what? Oh, why didn't I do that, right? I, I, I mean, they're arguing. It makes you think they all wanted to know, right? They're all, like, hoping they'll get first, right? And, like, if you ever have, like, I remember in high school when you were in theater, they'd, like, have the cast list, right? And you'd, like, go read the list. And, or you'd post, they'd post grades, but they'd use, like, your student ID number so you couldn't see other people's grades. But then you'd be like, oh, man, everyone else got a 50 out of 50, and I got a 30, so clearly I'm dumb, right? Like, you still want to know the pecking order, right? All of them start arguing with each other. Just picture this. Jesus is grieving over this end of his ministry and knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem, and all of his disciples are bickering behind him about which one of them is going to take over the fake kingdom that they think he's going to start in the next week. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And this is where... This is where community even in the church is so dangerous because when we come in with our expectations like that, I want to be this, I want to serve in that, I want to be this, or, or, I, I, or even just your own preferences, your agenda, it, it robs everybody else of being in a family because it starts to play this game where everybody's trying to figure out who's better and 
who, who does Hannah like more? Who does Trey like more? Like, well, how can I impress them, right? And we start to pursue these things out of, out of the idea that we get something in return, that we appear better, we're more spiritual, we're more rewarded. And it's just, it's just brutal. And that's why Jesus, in verse 25, he, kinda, he always gives them, here's the kingdom of the world, here's what it looks like, and he gives it face value, here's what it is. And then he always says, here's my kingdom, and here's the opposite, and here's what it looks like. And so he says, you've heard it, you, you called them and said, you know that rulers of Gentiles, and rulers of Gentiles are just not Jews, Rome, other countries they would have known at the time in, in history, lord it over them, and that those in high positions use their authority over them. He's basically saying, you know how the world works, with authority and power. He's not saying get rid of all authority, right? He's, he's not saying everyone should be equal. There are relationships and authority and rules, and that's how Jesus leads. He's a teacher with a rabbi with authority. But, he's, but the key words are lord over or impose. It's meaning that they're using their authority to bear down on others, to, to manipulate, to abuse, to use for their own uh, hiring. And we've, we've, been, we've, we've dealt with this in family you're the younger sibling, typically, um, in work, in school, right, in jobs, like you have people who are all maybe equal with you, and they're all fighting for this next spot, and it's kind of like cutthroat. We see this in The Bachelor and Bachelorette in probably the worst way possible. Uh, they're all like fighting. And I don't even think they like the person. They're just like, I just want to win. I want to be on TV longer, right? So you're, gonna, you're dead to me, right? And, but we, we see this everywhere. This is our world, is... is using any form of authority or power in a manipulative, selfish, insidious way. And we might try to disguise it. Like sometimes we'll say, well, if I have to just ruin this person, but I raise up nine others, including myself, I think it's far worth the value, right? Or we try to do both, right? Like, well, I'll like lift up both people, but I'm still really just consumed in my own. I just don't want anybody calling me out for anything. So I'm going to mask it, and everybody's doing better. Everybody's doing great. But it's still this selfish pursuit. And sometimes you belittle, you step on others, you start to pursue things based out of your own selfishness. I remember when I first became an intern at this internship I talked about last week in Oregon. And, you know, you're in this 10-week incubated period where you're, like, trying to build, you're trying to build your resume. You know, you want to get a good job out of college. And they're only going to really look at your resume and interview you. So you, you can step on some necks to get some good references, right? Except in the, in the Christian world, specifically in the church, it's not how it works. In the workplace, you can probably get away with that. And not tell your friends or your small group or, you know, and, and get away with that. If you guys say that their work guys are like, oh, yeah, he's a jerk. But you wouldn't, we wouldn't know that, right? But in the church world, I'm at a church where those references, like, are judging my character, right? Not just my performance. And the common thread in that internship, in college, and even up until my residency four years ago, three years ago when I moved here was, hey, Trey, we just feel like you're not serving people unconditionally. I feel like you have an agenda or you're picking and choosing or you just, you're not really like being wholeheartedly servant-hearted for this, just the sake of, of just nothing, like just Jesus, right? Like you have an agenda, you're picking and choosing. And I don't know if you've dealt with this, and this is something that I really had to do. Like it was like a really humbling process. Because it sucks when several people say the same thing, because then you're like, darn it, they're right. You know what I mean? One person, you're like, oh, I don't know. They're just are seeing it weird. But several people, respectful people, people who've been in ministry, they're like, yeah, we're just not seeing you have this grit and grind to serve like, for, no, for, for no gain, right? Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it just it hit me really hard. I want to be a pastor. I want to lead by example. How can, I, how can I be a guy who's not willing to do whatever, right? And it's easy because, like, it's easy to fake that because the past, like, a lot of my job is this up front. A lot of my job is vision and, and these big picture things. 
that could be like, I don't have time to clean the toilets or sweep the floor. And, you know, and, and, and I just, I've just been like, you know what? I want to be like Jesus. And I'm going to, if it costs me a bigger church, if it costs me book sales or speaking engagements or whatever, like, who cares, right? Because I don't want to be like James and John the day before Jesus is, like, going to hit this storm, right? And for me, it's been a process and a journey every day. I have to remember, like, I'm not as good as I think I am. I'm a sinner that needs grace like anybody else, and I need to lead people into that same reality. And, and what really hit it for me was this next verse, the next two verses. In verse 26, it says, It must not be this way among you. Remember, Jesus says, Here's the kingdom of the world. You think it's cool? No. Let me, it is not. And it will not fit in my kingdom. It must not be that way among you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, or diakonos. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, or doulos. These are both Greek words, and what's, what I love about this, and this is where it hit me hard, was the first word, he's using two like instances of this. The first one is diakonos, which means servant, and the actual word is speaking specifically to household duties and food. It's, it's very practical. Should I, I dare to say housewifeish? It's very like chore-based in the house. It's nothing like astonishing. It's just taking care of your home. And so I read that and was like, oh, so my joke is like husbands, like you got to do the dishes. Like, and I'm not really joking. I'm kind of serious. Like you, you, you should do that because Jesus told you to. But for me, it meant oh, like I scrub the floors, like I clean the toilets. I can do any of that. If we had grass, I'd mow it. Right? I come in on Mondays a lot. And I don't know if we just haven't figured this out yet, <clears throat> but the coffee cart cleans all the dishes and they leave them to dry, which is just how it works. And they're always just set out on the counter. And I'm, every Monday I come in and 15 minutes of my day is just like putting the dishes away. And it's stupid and I hate it and it's dumb. And I'm being paid for that, which is dumb. But, but it's a reminder that it's like I'm just, I'm just, I'm trying to be a diakonos. I'm trying to be a servant for our family. I think about this the same way when people want to serve, right? And they fill out a form and they say, well, I want to do this. I'm really gifted in this. And it's just, it's a little silly sometimes because maybe you are very warm and personable and you should hold the front door and greet people. But I've never met anybody who woke up and was like, I am a pro at the Sennheiser X32 or Behringer X32 soundboard. Like, put me in. It's my gifting. No, it's a family chore. You learn it, right? When you're three, you don't know how to pick up your toys. So I, I sing the song and we pick up the toys and you learn how to do it, right? That's how you participate in that. And in the same way, I think if everyone in our church just thought about how can I just help with chores, like, it sounds silly, but we're a family. How do I help with chores? How do I give a helping hand? I'm never above putting away chairs. I'm never above. And our cores, I don't know if you know this, our core groups every week clean the church. We rotate. We have enough core groups where you don't have to do it a ton, but we, we clean the church every week. And it's great. And it's awesome. And some, one of the people in the core groups has to clean the toilets, right? And, but it's like, it's what we do. We're never above that. But the second word, duo, slave, is actually Far harsher, in my opinion. It's one thing to do the dishes or to do the lawn or the chores or whatever. It's another thing to embody what this means. And this means to be a slave, which is, at base root, someone who is not in control, submits themselves to a master. Now, our definition of slavery, when we immediately think, we think of, like, you know, Africa and colonization, slavery in America the last 200 years, which has a lot of really just terrible roots to it. Now, I'm not saying slavery is good, but in this culture for a century, slavery was a lot different. Uh, people would be enslaved because of money issues. They'd be enslaved out of just social welfare. Like if you couldn't have a job, it was actually kind of stable to be a slave because you worked in a wealthy house, you had a place to sleep, food to eat, right? And so slavery was just different then. But in this, 
instance, the main root of the word is essentially just serving or giving yourself over to a master. The same word is used in Matthew 6 or 7 where Jesus says you can't serve either. You can't serve both God and money. Meaning you, you can't be a slave to both. You can't have two masters. You will serve one. Meaning you will give your submission over to either money in the pursuit of it or God. And so it's the same word. So what he's saying is you, you need to give yourself over to others. Now that's, we've talked about this the last few weeks. It's a terrifying thing to give yourself over to others because they can take advantage of you. And the world is full of people who do that. But there's this beauty in the way the kingdom works. And Jesus says that. He does it with, when he brings in God the Father. He says, look, it's not mine to pick. Who's at my right or left? Jesus is submitting to the Father. The Trinity submits all to one another. It's this beautiful idea of community. We honor that the same way in the church. We submit to Jesus and to others for the sake of the kingdom. And so he just, I love this. He just like, look, you're not going to be like the world. You're not going to be like this. You're not going to lord over people for your own sake. He basically says you're going to assume the lowest position and you're going to work from there. You're going to work from there with no agenda. You're going to do normal and mundane things, right? Uh, I think Timothy says you're going to live a quiet life, meaning like you don't need to worry about the glam and fat, the flashes and all that, right? And you're going to do small, practical, non-showy things, and you're going to be under submission to Jesus and what he calls you to. And that is the final foundation of this understanding of the kingdom because we're capping off this whole kingdom reality, Jesus' whole ethic and teaching and all of that. The kingdom is full of servant-hearted people. It's full of people who are willing to suffer and be servant-hearted for the sake of the kingdom. If I was to describe Jesus' entire ministry on earth in two words, it would be suffering and serving. It would be suffering and serving. I mean, think about it. His whole ministry is serving others and, and, and suffering a ridiculous death and accusations and all this. And he even says that. He closes in verse 28. He puts these two kingdoms he finally gives you the foundation of his kingdom. He says, just as the Son of Man, which is him, did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's saying, look, I would never do anything I'm not asking you to do, and I have done it, and I will continue to do it in the next week in Jerusalem. Give your life over to others. Serve others instead of expecting to be served. I've been reading this book with our apprenticeship cohort, uh, Life Together. It's a short little book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and it's, a, it's about like, kind of his understanding of Christian community. And uh, there's this paragraph that he, I love that he talks about. And I try to like drill this into anybody's head, really anybody who will listen. But anybody who wants to be a part of a church, maybe has struggled in the past, has been critical of churches, has had bad church hurt experiences, whatever. I try to teach them this concept. Bonhoeffer says, Every human wish dream that is injected into Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community, and it must be banished if genuine community is to survive. He who loves his dream of a community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. And what he really gets at in the book, and I can't read it obviously all, but is that idea of like, if you enter into a community worrying about what you're going to get out of it, you, you've ruined it. You've already ruined community. And I get it, there's problems and things, and we take feedback, and it's not like I'm like, don't email me if a problem happens. But, but our heart when we enter in is, I'm going to love these people the absolute best that I can, and, and I promise you, they'll, like, in the long run, it will only do you good. It will only do your heart good, your relationship good, you honoring and sanctifying and becoming more like Jesus, and that person. Think about it, if you have a good friend, if you both um, decide we are going to honor and love each other just as best we can, 
and you stop trying to worry about, well, I called them and they didn't call me back or they never pursued me. Like, you are immediately doing exactly what Jesus calls you to and, and it's, it's the most beautiful thing. When someone just not, doesn't stop pursuing you, that's called marriage. If you're married, you know that. You continually give over your own desires, your wants for the sake of showing the gospel. Jesus becoming a ransom, you becoming a ransom, giving your life over for people. And that's what he closes on. Now, you're probably thinking, okay, that's a great story, but then there's his last story, which is next, our next story, which is a lot quicker, don't worry. It's this healing, and it's weird. It's in Jericho. There's this large crowd following him. It says in verse 29 and verse 30, there's two blind men sitting on the road. They're begging. When they heard that Jesus was passing by, they shouted, Have mercy on us, Lord, Son of David. And as they shout that, the crowd scolds them, Be quiet. But they shouted even more loudly, Lord, have mercy on us, Son of David. Jesus stops and he calls them. He says, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Lord, let our eyes be opened, moved with compassion. We've talked about that word compassion, that, like the gut feeling he has. Jesus touched their eyes. Immediately they received their sight, and they followed him. Now, this is kind of a weird story. Jer- Jericho is like 18 miles away from Jerusalem, depending on where you're at in Jericho. And so it's a day walk, a long day walk, but you can do it. It's, down, it's like several thousand feet downhill. It's a weird kind of like cavernous-y walk. That's where the Good Samaritan, that idea, the walk, that's where that's from. It's kind of a dangerous walk, but... They're, they're getting there. They're getting close. These crowds are, are pressing in. They're about to leave Jericho. These beggars are like, this is prime time of the year to beg because all the Passover people are coming and they're being generous. And It's like begging on a street corner at 4 to 6 p.m. Like That is your prime window, right? Everybody's off work. And so they're, they're, there's you know, hundreds, I don't know, maybe thousands, hundreds of people following Jesus. These two blind guys yell, Jesus, son of David, right? Have mercy on us. Now, what's unique here is the phrase son of David. This is not the first time we've heard this in Matthew, but son of David is powerful because what it's saying is basically we believe that you are the Old Testament Messiah prophesied. Like, we believe that you are him. When you say son of David, you're referring to the root of Jesse in the Old Testament. And so what they're saying is you're not just maybe some healer. You're not just maybe some moral teacher. Like, you are the Messiah, the Christ, the chosen one. And by them saying that, it's kind of communicating, like, we, we believe it. We see it, Right? Even though we're blind, we see it. And so what seems like a very kind of, I mean, it's a miraculous healing, but mundane to us because we've already like seen healings and this is the last one Jesus does, but it doesn't seem that spectacular. Like if I was Jesus and I was entering Jerusalem, I would have like shot up some fireworks, had some angels come down, right? I don't know, like pillar of fire. You know what I'm saying? Like out of your arsenal, this seems like an average play, right? But what he's getting at is that his heart never changes for the mundane, the downtrodden, the lost that just are sitting there that everybody else abandons and ignores. That at the end of it, the more he gains a following and the more that he's getting closer to what he's meant to do, he doesn't forsake his, his original plan, which is to, to let the blind see and the sick healed and to preach to the lost. And, and he does that. And it's, it, you read it and you're like, like I said, it's not like, wow, what an epic ending. But it's, it's a reminder, this is what the kingdom is about. Sometimes it's mundane. Now it's a miraculous healing, but to us we read it and we're like, okay, another healing, cool. But these people's hearts went out for Jesus. And I think what, what this gets at and why Matthew, why Matthew has this and why it matters is it's, it's a case study. It's a case study between two cocky brothers who had the most inside passage to Jesus and two blind guys who had never even seen Jesus with their eyes. And we see both parties have, have a spot in the kingdom. But one party is super cocky, worried about their status, worried about their influence. Jesus essentially has to like rebuke them. Whereas another party is saying, we know who you are We're desperate. I don't care if everyone tells us to shut up. We're yelling even louder. 
save us. And Jesus' heart turns to them and has compassion, and they follow him. And so as we enter into this, this storm, there is people from all walks of life. There's the prideful that are being humbled. There's the humble that are being lifted up. That's a narrative in the Bible that we see often. But I, I just think when we think about this, like, who do I want to be in that story? I want to be the blind beggar who has just a whole heart full for Jesus. Right? It's like, I know nothing else but you, and I want you, and, the, and not worrying about what these other guys can see. And so as we close, and I invite up Jerry here, um, in a bit of reflection, I want to ask just a few questions that I want us to reflect on. Um, but before we do, I'll just kind of talk about our time of formation, so it kind of centers you. We do four things in our time of formation. It's just a space for you, the process, to finish journaling. Um, to, we have people in the back who can pray for you. Uh, we have the bread and cup up front, which is just a reminder of this ransom. And, and when he's talking about, are you willing to take this cup? He's talking about his blood and his body that we, we, we take it as a reminder and a sacrifice that he gave up something so that we might live and be free. Uh, we also believe giving is an act of worship and faithfulness and obedience. And, uh, and then there's also reflection, and that's where I'll get to these questions. And all these things we call them formation time because these are the sanctifying walks that we participate in behind Jesus. And, and these are the questions I want to ask you up on the screen. The main question and the whole, the whole question that, suffered, that, that, uh, that sets the pace for this is, are you willing to live in Jesus' footsteps as a suffering servant? Because at the, at the bottom line, what we learn in these two stories is the humblest servant and slave, the most dependent on the grace of God, is the greatest in God's kingdom. That's what we learn. The baseline person who's crushing it in the kingdom is a humble servant and slave, and they're just dependent every day on the grace of God. So are you willing to live in Jesus' footsteps as a suffering servant? And then the, the kind of the smaller clarifying questions, are you willing to relinquish world greatness daily for kingdom greatness? And you do this through serving others, submitting your will to Jesus. And then lastly, are you like him? Are you willing to stoop and serve the least like Jesus does, even in times of hardship or difficulty? So we'll give you some time to process, to do some of those formation steps, and then uh, we'll sing one more song to close. Thank you for listening to the Contrast Church Podcast. To learn more about us and how you can be a part of it, visit contrast.church.